0: your Bible this morning turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would. We'll be there in a few moments. It's good to see you today. All right, let me ask you, Sam, we'll get right to it this morning. Book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, of course, is writing to his apprentice, Timothy, and giving him instruction. And Timothy, which I'll mention in a moment, was having a number of trials and struggles in pastoring the church at Ephesus. And let's do this. Look back in verse number 15 of chapter 1, because I, I want to see the context of the verses we'll consider in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And Paul says to this young man and to us, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so this is sort of the theme of what Paul's going to write about is the salvation of those uh, who are lost. He said, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. And then for a pattern to them which should thereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. And now this this uh, uh, beautiful way of Paul describes who the Lord is, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, this charge I commit to thee, son Timothy, according to prophecies which were before on thee, that thou, but by them thou mightest for a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwreck." Now verse number 1 of chapter 2, he says, "...I exhort therefore," in this idea of seeing people saved, "...that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority." that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning with the intent to worship you, but also, Lord, to learn and, Lord, to receive edification and exhortation. And, Father, I I pray that as we uh, cast our eyes forward to a new year, that, Lord, we would approach it, and, Lord, all of its challenges and blessings, Lord, in a way that would, Lord, honor You. And so, Lord, with this specific instruction today to pray, I pray You'd help us to do that. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you so much for standing today. The letter of 1 Timothy, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul, Uh, Back to Timothy, which was a son of faith, an apprentice, whom he had met on a previous missionary journey. The intent of this letter was to encourage him, to exhort him to keep doing those things which had been committed unto him, the truth, and the mission of proclaiming the gospel to a lost generation, and of course of caring for the church in which he was in charge of, and that would have been the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote to give instruction to this young pastor on how to organize, how to administrate, and unfortunately how to deal with the problems that would arise in an assembly of lost sinners saved, you know, the church. Timothy had been pastoring uh, this church at Ephesus at the time of this writing for probably about five years as far as we can determine. Uh, Paul, of course, started the church and Left it in the capable hands of Timothy, and Paul went on to start other churches in the region, but continuing to give young Timothy counsel and guidance. Specifically, Timothy was dealing with some crisis within the church. Some leaders were asserting themselves in somewhat of a negative way. There were there was wannabe leaders who were also vying for some prominence in the church, and. Left unchecked they had the potential to damage the church and to damage Timothy's ministry there. So, Timothy was facing uh, pressures from without, which I'll talk about in a moment, and then also some challenges from within. In this letter, Paul gives Timothy some sound, practical, and helpful advice. But what he says in the beginning of the second chapter is something that I want to talk about really kind of in a topical way today. And he says, there is something that should take priority and precedence in your life, something that should be done first of all before navigating any of the challenges of life. And of course, that is to pray about them. Uh, We have a tendency in our own wisdom to tackle and wrestle with the problems of life. And it's not wrong to do so. It is not wrong for us to try to solve the riddles, the challenges that may beset us. But the Apostle Paul admonishes Timothy as he would us, that as we navigate life, it is is wrong-headed. it would be misguided, and it would also really be a, a form of denial of what Christ could do by failing to pray for those things that He can affect in our lives. He says, first of all, before I give you additional counsel on how to deal with the problems of the church, Timothy, you need to learn to pray. Before addressing the issues before you, you need to pray. And, and he gives some words here in the text uh, that help us understand this thought. Supplications, uh, which really means to ask someone something. Um, prayers, which was the general Greek word for asking. Intercession is the idea of asking someone in authority for help. And then thanksgiving is to ask, recognizes that you are already the recipient of many blessings in your life. These are all sort of similar words, and I think to try to distinguish any nuance between them probably isn't helpful to what Paul's intending here. Um, the best way to approach meeting the needs of life, Paul's saying, is you need to pray about it, you need to ask God for help. Now, to provide some context for Paul's writing and his comments, the Christians in the church of Ephesus um, at that time were living under the autocratic authoritarian rule of Rome. And so this is who he is asking them in part to pray for is people in positions of power that they would have no natural love for. It would have not been in their natural inclination to want the best for these individuals who, in many ways, were probably um, hurting their lives, who were oppressing them. But nevertheless, Paul says, You pray for them. Primarily, um, all the Caesars were evil, but um, Nero, at the time of this writing, was especially egregious and nefarious. The man Nero was a cruel man. His his the litany of, of atrocities committed, of course, is recorded in history. He was a man who was debauched and depraved. He was a horrific king and tyrant, and he was responsible for the deaths of many Christians and, and beyond that, anyone who stood in opposition to him. Christians and the Christians at Ephesus, to whom Paul was writing via Timothy, lived under the constant threat and peril of perhaps losing liberty, maybe even losing life, possessions, and freedom. The government for these Christians was far from fair. It was far from good. It was certainly did not have any form of the republic or democracy that we know today. Taxation would have been inordinate. Liberties and rights were often abused or declined. Uh, people had no voice in what was happening around them, and Paul told Timothy the best way to address living in that environment was to pray about it. Right. Now, if we just stop here for a moment, I think that's incredibly instructive in this in the political climate we find ourselves in today. And I'm going to get ahead of myself, but I, I I think it's easy for us to to maybe recognize we have a lot of other responses to the perilous times that we live in. And one of those is primarily just to gripe about it. We complain, we we despair, we bemoan it. We watch endless reels of negative news to reinforce our already negative opinions about the state of things in the world. And Paul said there's probably a better way to use your mental, emotional, spiritual energy. And that's to pray about it. It's easy, and I think it's even um, somewhat ubiquitous for us as individual people in the, in the country, in the world, to feel somewhat disconnected, and, or we have no ability to change things. We feel like those in, in charge aren't listening to us. Uh, but the reality is, is we know, and as Brother Daniel and as Brother Jesse saying, we have a relationship and a connection to the omnipotent creator of this world. We are not powerless. We we are not uh, someone who just leaves blowing the wind with no ability to affect the change in the world. Paul says we should pray about these things. The best way to gain the ability to lead a quiet and peaceable life, which I'll discuss in a moment, and to exercise godliness and honesty, was to pray about it. Uh, Paul didn't say petition, he said pray. Pray. He didn't say revolt, he said pray. He didn't say march, he said pray. He didn't say be discouraged. And he's also intimating that in offering prayers with thanksgiving. He said, no, no, go, go to God thanking Him for what's good in your life and discuss these matters of concern with Him. We need to instead adopt a spirit of grace that manifests itself in a power of prayer. The idea is this, we, you and I ought not be overcome by evil, but overcome the evil by a gracious, prayerful spirit. The goal here in view was to a degree to live a godly and peaceful life. But the larger context of this is not just so we could live... Um, in a way that we were not abused by the world or the government. But the idea is God is saying, pray for an environment where you are free to share the gospel with other people without impediment. That's really the context. You pray for those elected officials that they would conduct themselves, or I shouldn't say elected, appointed at this time, uh, officials who, who will allow there to be an environment conducive for you to share your faith. And, and that's what Paul is in part implying. Um, quiet and peaceful of course we we want that so we have the opportunity as he says in verse 3 and 4 to share the gospel with all men who need to be saved paul is saying pray about that recognize that god is sovereign recognize that he is ruler of all things and that even wicked king and life's most negative circumstances do not fall outside his control The Bible tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And let's turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 40 real quickly. This will be a very familiar text. But rather than despair and bemoan the world, we should recognize God's rulership, his kingship, his sovereignty. And rather than be in despair about life, let's go to him in prayer, recognizing what he can do. This is a beautiful text. In Isaiah chapter 40, we'll begin our reading in verse 21. And the Bible says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stalk shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwinds shall take them away as stubble. In other words, we fret about kings and rulers, but God's got it. He's in control. And if you, if you want to address the situation we're in, why not appeal to this Creator and Sovereign God to change things? To whom will you liken me? Or who shall be my equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Get them off the news a little bit. This is a better place to put your eyes. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number, who called them by the names of the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, and not one faileth. He's talking about the stars, which are somewhat infinite in number, and God has a name for all of them. It's just painting a portrait of the largeness of God. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, of Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, and there is no searching of his understanding? And he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. And the idea of waiting on the Lord is they go to Him and before Him asking for help. This is what Paul is asking Timothy to do, to go to this great sovereign creator, God, petition him for the issues of life, and there you can find life's greatest remedies for the challenges of your life. God is above all things. He has power over all things. He can control all things. We are We act presumptuously and arrogantly when we navigate life without Him. As the Bible says, we have not because we ask not. This is true in all of life. God's hand, His permission, His orchestration is in and above all things. And because of this, the first thing we do, we should do in addressing life's challenges, whatever they may be, is to ask God for help concerning them. If we look back at the text, what Paul is asking them to consider is talk to this God of heaven about creating an environment where, yes, you can live peaceful and quiet lives, but where the gospel can also go forth. He's talking about the issue of salvation. And he says the best way for people to get saved, in part, is to pray about that. Um, Yes, we should preach. Yes, we should proclaim. Yes, we should witness. But here's a really good formula um, it should go something like this We should talk to God about men and then talk to men about God. Amen. And there's greater power in that order, I believe. The larger point is this prayer should precede all the concerning things of life. And prayer holds the power um, to change everything in life. But, but here's, here's something I want you to see in the text. He is saying part of this is the praying for your own life that can be free from additional stress. Um, pray that salvation can be known and, and, and praying about that that witnessing is part of life. But He's also in these words um, that we can live a a virtuous, a godly, a righteous life. What Paul's implying is that we should also be praying that our character is such. Are you listening? That our character is such that in a negative world, they see our um, authentic Christian life and they might be tempted to ask us for a reason of the hope that's in us. I mean, that's part of what he's intimating here. He's not just saying, hey, pray so you have no struggles in life. That's that's not his greatest concern. Yes, pray that you can live a quiet and peaceful life, but you live it in godliness, that you live it in a way that the world looks at it and and, and what your life authenticates what you say you believe. That's what he's asking him to pray about. Pray, Pray for that, that your life will be a testimony and a witness in this dark world. We ought not live in the blessed life we do and not ask God for help. And so I want us to consider something today that we to merits our prayers. I, I was thinking about this at the end of the year, looking for the next one, that um, is there not a lot to pray about right now? And my, my heart has some concern about this, but I'm thinking specifically about the text and the fact that Paul's asking them to pray for a quiet and peaceful life, but, but also that we would be godly lights, that we would be witnesses in this. That's what Paul wanted for his life, that's what he wanted for the church. And there's two ways we should ask God in terms of our prayers. Let's ask God to fix part of this broken world. And then let's ask God to help us be part of the, the fix, right? I was doing, of course, I'm reading the news, which I really encourage you to do less of. And I, I, my heart was saddened as I, as I was just perusing some articles about the condition. And I'm thinking primarily of the Western world, America, but the world at large. And uh, so I'm reading about these different demographic groups, Gen Z, millennials, uh, boomers, and different groups. And never has there been a time, at least in my lifetime, when I think the world has been more anxious and in need of our prayers and our witness than today. There was this article on uh, millennials and the things that they worry about and among them will they worry about the ability to simply navigate life and there's this pervasive fear among many millennials that they will not be able to achieve what their parents did they they fear that we live in an increasingly increasingly unstable world that cannot be fixed they fear they may lose their job and they feel they have no financial stability They, like many of us, feel a sense of despair about the current political situation and the divide that our country is in. I'll come back to this. They have inordinate and incredibly large environmental concerns. They fear another pandemic. They fear uh, cyber uh, attacks on our nation. Of all the labels used to describe millennials, the one used most often is the anxious generation. They believe the world is on fire and the extinction of our, their word, species is at hand. I want you to listen to these fears and concerns about the world that we live in and the world that can be prayed about. 54% of young people believe in their lifetime they will see a nuclear attack. They believe that a third world war is inevitable. They feel like because of social media and so much misinformation there's no one to trust. 42% battle depression. One in four struggle with drug addiction. One in five know someone who's committed suicide. Gen Z has more mental health problems, I should say this, more self-reported mental health problems than any generation before. 47% feel like they are struggling emotionally and psychologically. They fear there's no solutions for the world's crisis. Many of them have incredible concerns about gun violence, of which there are some 650 plus mass shootings next year, last this last year, probably somewhat justified. They fear global warming. Now I want you to look up here for me a second. A lot of you are, are maybe of my generation and, and, and we, we listen to this stuff, Maybe somewhat benignly, we may have opinions, and that, my my point is not to argue those opinions today. My point is this: there are people in our world whose lives are being destroyed because of these fears. Right. I read this, and I don't want to be discouraging today. I'm sorry if I'm headed that way, but this I just just it bothered me. This is an article written by a 20-something um, college student. And then I'm going to give you some numbers um, that are associated with this. Here's what she wrote. If temperatures weren't rising, I'd choose the name Athena for a girl. If the rivers were safe, I'd choose William for a boy. If I could breathe clean air on my morning commute, I might paint my nursery a warm yellow. If I could see hope for a sustainable future, I wouldn't be spending time mourning the children that I'm not ever going to have. If things were different, I'd be honored to become a parent. Indeed, I think there is no greater privilege or responsibility. But each day, the current state of the world dissuades me more and more from having children. And her fears grow from, Primarily, this inordinate concern that the world is going to come apart at the seams. And I'm not bringing a child into that. This climate anxiety knows no national borders. According to a study from the University of Bath, nearly 40% of 16 to 25-year-old participants from several countries stated that they were hesitant to have children because of the world's condition, 40%. An ever-expanding organization called No Future, No Children is gaining ever-increasing traction on social media. They're terrified to have kids. A social study was done on the troubles in America neighborhoods. And this guy does social research all around the world, and so he decided to do some here in America. Now, I want you to listen. This is, this is I don't know if this guy's even a Christian, I, I doubt it. But this was his estimation after doing a, a, a social study of America. American society is in trouble from gun violence in Baltimore, to teens committing suicide in Palo Alto, to the opioid crisis in Appalachia. Our families and communities suffer from social problems that shock the rest of the world, and they ought to shock us. Family disintegration, homelessness, school shootings, racial animosity, skyrocketing rates of loneliness and depression, deaths of despair, alcoholism, drug abuse, and suicide. No country in history has had such material wealth alongside such unprecedented social decay. There's these questions that they're asking, why are people killing themselves in these ways in the United States? He says, our prosperity as a nation doesn't seem to have improved our well-being. If anything, it has left millions of people and families feeling more alienated and discontented than ever. He, there's this Article about um, that the glue that once held us together is coming apart. Okay, and I want to stop here, and I want to. I'm asking you to pray, but I'm asking you to do more than that. To consider more than that, I'm asking you to consider that there's some things even in this church that really need to be protected. I want you to listen to another article about what's happening. The social decay we are experiencing in neighborhoods across America is unlike anything I have seen elsewhere. This is another study. In even the poorest of countries, it affects not only our domestic conditions but also our foreign policy because it gives our geopolitical rivals, China in particular, leverage to argue that their authoritarian systems are better than our own. What forces are at work in the United States that create this exceptional social poverty? Now, I want you to listen. I'm I'm, I'm taking us somewhere. (laughs) In the US, the relationships that bind us to each other are growing ever weaker. They're even disintegrating, making Americans some of the most depressed, anxious, addicted, alienated, and untethered people in the world. While our popular culture tends to portray each of us as fully autonomous individuals in control of his or her own own destiny, Social science observes that this is not true. Okay. In other words, your best future isn't tied to you by yourself. That's not true. He has uh, something else he wants to submit. Each of us is embedded in circles of relationship and institutions that shape everything from our psychology and beliefs to how we treat each other and what life choices we have made. Such constraints may seem limiting at times, living with other people, but are empowering when they enable a positive social dynamic. (laughs) What does this dark world need? This is what this man writes next. Real community produces an ecosystem in which every member is deeply embedded. Not a collection of relationships that can be picked up and moved if the owner desires it. A real community requires a commitment to certain social order, a certain set of institutions and norms, and usually to a certain place. Does that sound like something to you? Are you guys listening? What's that sound like to you? Church. Now, he's not saying that word, I'm saying that word. And what he's saying America needs is what we have. <laughs> but in return for surrendering some of our freedoms, we gain something far more valuable practical support when in need day-to-day camaraderie, and a greater sense of security and belonging. While this may breed a degree of insularity in some places and has and, and resulted in the exclusion of some of the past, it certainly does not have to be that way. And so, in fact, we need greater communities. And just as individuals are not autonomous, relationships do not exist autonomously, they are embedded in social structures. For most of us, the structures that matter most are hyper-local. What matters is marriage, family, schools. And he says it, church. When these social structures weaken, people suffer. See, I put all that in the context of Paul's writing. Can look up here. We see this world around us, and I think there's uh, like this legitimate concern for what like the next year can bring. So what's our response? What should our response be? And I'm talking about Eastland Baptist Church. Well, can we do this? Can we just all agree to pray about it? Political talk's okay. You can have your opinions. You, 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 you can do whatever, but I, I, I would submit to you, let, let's, let's not become negative. That helps nobody. That feeds the wrong monster. You, you and I can pray about it. We, 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 it's when God's people, people humble themselves and pray. Now, I know that's in, in a context in the Old Testament concerning Israel, but I think a principle still applies. Because it's all through the Old Testament, New Testament, that we are the light and salt of the world. And God might preserve a lot for a few, for the sake of a few, so we can pray about it. And God may, by some act of sovereignty, extend some kind of grace to us as a a nation, or maybe things are going to run a course. But here's the thing, even if we're on a fast hill, going downhill, what that means more than ever is that people need places like this. It's more important than ever that you live an authentic Christian life. Peaceable, quiet, godly, respectable is what the word means actually in the Greek. A respectable life. Rather than to bemoan the culture, let's live above it. Let's be salt and light. Let's not just pray that God changed the world through some providential act. He might... I don't see a lot of good outcomes in the coming year. But how about this? You and I can be a part in helping someone else find a place like this to know Christ as Savior and then a community to live above whatever else is happening outside these walls. We are the change agents of this world. So, as we go through the year, let's pray. Whatever concerns you have, Don't waste any more energy bemoaning it. Pray about it. And that would be true not just for our country, but for your own life. Pick some specific issue for your family and pray about it. And then start asking God as well that you might be a part of the solution. I don't know that I can change America but I can be a part of seeing some life changed. I can live such a, a, a peaceful, quiet, godly, authentic life that someone asks me for the reason of hope that's in me. And the world may despair, but I'm not. And someone else may not have to. I think these things are in our power and in our control. I, I, I think this, if ever there was a time to pray, it's now. If ever there was a time in our lives to pray, I, I think we should start right now. Okay, let me ask you to stand.